So like I said, we are busy with our summer break series called Defining Moments. And we're saying a defining moment is when you are confronted by a truth that challenges you to make a decision. A decision that will have a dramatic impact on your life. Many of us can, can look back over our lives and say, yes, we've had many defining moments, some good and some bad. The bad ones was when we thought, oh, if only I had listened to so-and-so and decided to do that. Or, or sometimes we look back and go, no, there's been some good defining moments. I'm so glad I listened to that particular truth and I applied it to my life. And so last week we were confronted with the truth that Jesus uses all of our tragedies and all of our tough times for his glory and we said that that was the most loving thing that he can do for us because we were designed ultimately to find joy and satisfaction and comfort in his glory. And so you remember we started the story of Lazarus and uh, Jesus gets word that his, his friend Lazarus, whom John tells us he loves with agape love. You might remember that, that that's God's love. It's, it's very demonstrative love. And he gets word that, that Lazarus is on his deathbed and his sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus, please come quickly, your friend Lazarus is on his deathbed. And then when Jesus gets the news, he promptly stays two days longer in the place where he was. And we're thinking, well, oh, Jesus, how, how is that loving? How, how is that agape love? How, how is that glorious? How will you be shown to be glorious by doing that? And, and how is that responding appropriately to the hope that these sisters have so clearly placed in you? And then we saw that Jesus hinted that he was going to do something glorious through this tragedy that would result in great joy, love, and comfort for this family. And so that then leads us to part two of the story. We now want to see this glory. What, what is this glory that he's talking about? Because we're saying that seeing the glory of Jesus results in great joy for us. So what do we need to do in order to see this glory, especially in our times of trial, our times of tragedies. So here's what I'm proposing. To see the glory of God means we must believe in the authority of God. To see the glory of God, we must believe in the authority of God. To see the glory of God, especially when we go through those tough times, especially when we go through our times of heartache and tragedies, we must believe, we must have faith we must lean into the truth that Jesus has authority over all things. You might be familiar with the word sovereign. He is sovereign over all things, has all authority, all power over everything, especially during our times of trial and tragedies. In fact, what we're going to see is three specific things that we need to believe in in terms of Seeing Jesus' authority or believing in Jesus' authority so that we can see and experience his glory. We're going to have a look at this as we go through the, the rest of the story. You can find these three points on the back of your bulletin. We'll put them on the screen for you. To see the glory of God, we must believe firstly in Jesus' authority over darkness or evil. 
Then secondly, in Jesus' authority over life and death. And then lastly, in Jesus' authoritative compassion over life. So here we go. To see the glory of God, point number one, we must believe in Jesus' authority over darkness. And by darkness, I'm speaking metaphorically of all things that are opposed to Jesus and opposed to God's will and God's plan in our lives and in this world. There are human and there are demonic forces that want to disrail or disrupt God's plans. But what we're going to see very clearly here is that Jesus has authority over them even when it looks like they're winning. So back to our story. Jesus stays two days long in the place where he was doing whatever he was doing. And then he says this to his disciples. Have a look at verse 7 with me. Then after uh, this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, meaning teacher, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? You know, there's, oh, time out, Jesus. Do you not remember what happened last time we were in Judea? Did you not, did you not see the dark, evil intentions in their eyes? They wanted to take you out. They wanted to stone you. Why would you want to go back there again? And then Jesus typically gives his unusual answer. Have a look at verse 9. He says, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light, and you'd think because he doesn't have a flashlight. No, he says, because the light is not in him. And they're like, what? No, no, we're worried you're going to get stoned and you're going on about the hours of the day? So here's a little, a little tip. When it comes to tricky passages like this, and we're tempted to pour our meaning or our interpretation onto the text, here's the golden rule. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let the infallible interpret the infallible. And so we ask the question, well, where else has Jesus said something similar to this that helps us clarify the meaning in this particular part of the story, in this particular text? And so he does say something similar in John 9 verse 4. Have a look at this. He says, again to his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Right? Talking about the Father's plan that, the, that Jesus is to accomplish. So we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the context of this is that he's about to heal the man born blind. And so what he means here is because he is the light of the world, then the day then refers to his earthly ministry, his time while he is here on earth. As long as the light of the world is in the world, there is day. But then he says, well, there is darkness coming. There is night coming. And most scholars believe that he's talking about his crucifixion. But he's saying, until then, the Father's will will be done, including going to Judea, including going back to Lazarus. Nothing will happen to Jesus apart from the Father's will. So going back to Judea, disciples, as dangerous and as dark and as evil as it may and scary as it may seem to you, it's still daylight. 
It's still part of the Father's plan. And so Jesus, in a very cryptic way, uh, is telling them that he has authority over all darkness, over all evil, over the evil intentions of the Jews, because their hour has not been granted to them yet. It is still daylight. In fact, it's not even like, you know, like, like evil eventually catches up on Jesus. Ah, we got you, you turned your back on us and we got you. Now I'm going to arrest you, crucify you and, and bury you. No, no. We see time and time again how darkness, how evil plays right into the hands of God's plan. Right into the hands of light. Jesus said it like this. Have a look at this. This is amazing. John 10 from verse 17, he says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Not the Jews, not the devil, not Pontius Pilate. He says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So you think, oh, wait a minute, Jesus. So, so you mean to tell us when that mob came to arrest you in the Garden of Gethsemane, you, you mean to tell us that you were in control that you had authority there. And he would say, yes, I could have called down a thousand legions of angels. Okay, so Jesus, when you were literally dead and buried in the tomb, are you telling us that you're in complete control, that you had authority then? He says, I have authority to lay it down and to take it up again. In other words, death has no hold on me because evil and darkness have no hold over me. And if they have no hold over him, then they have no hold over us. Meaning, evil does not ultimately have authority over us because we are under the authority of King Jesus. And so if we're gonna see the glory of God, then we need to believe this truth regarding his all supreme authority, even when it looks like evil is winning, evil, even when it looks like evil is, is having its way. I remember uh, many, many years ago, a friend and myself, we started a, an outreach into a local township uh, near Port Elizabeth where we were living. A, a township would be uh, similar to a slums, but I don't wanna get too derogatory in terms of the terms. Uh, but you get the idea, the poorest of the poor. And uh, so what we would do is we'd go into this township with 20 laptops. And uh, we wanted to teach young men the basics of computer skills so that they could stop hanging around in the pubs getting drunk and actually try and go get a job. We wanted to upskill them. And so the school that was in this township, beaten up old school, they allowed us to use one of their classrooms after school. And so we would go in there and we had a bunch of young guys and they were enjoying it. They were learning the basics of computers until one afternoon we dismissed the class. Most of the guys had left and one or two students stayed behind to help us pack up all of these laptops. Three guys came in with their guns and they told us to hit the ground. So we, we lay on the ground and they demanded all the laptops and they began packing up the rest of the laptops. And I, I remember lying there looking at them out of the corner of my eye going, wow, these guys haven't even bothered to disguise themselves. They're in jeans and a t-shirt, wielding their guns, packing up our laptops. And so I began to wonder, well, how is this going to end? 
because we can identify them. And so that fear began to creep in. That fear began to grip me. And then one of the guys came over and he demanded my car keys. And I remember I got all panicky because I couldn't find my car keys. I can never find my car keys. So I'm trying to find my car keys. And eventually I found them under a jersey, on a chair, gave it to him, hit the ground again. And then they walked to the door and they began discussing what they were going to do with us. And I remember in that moment praying and clinging to the truth, Jesus, you have all authority over evil. Jesus, your will be done. And then one of the guys turned to us and he said, because you cooperated, we're not going to kill you. They closed the door, bolted us in, drove off in my car. Uh, fortunately, one of the students who was still with us, he had hidden his cell phone. He pulled it out, phoned the police. They came over, let us out, took our statements. They never found the guys, never found the laptops. Fortunately, found my car the very next day without a scratch on it, so I was very relieved about that. Um, but I was so, so grateful to the Lord for His protection over us in that moment. He had the ultimate say. He had the ultimate authority in that moment. More than that, a church, a particular church in the States, heard about what had happened to us and so they donated 20 brand new Dell laptops to us. Then a church in Port Elizabeth also heard about what happened to us. And they said, you know what? You can use our venue for free during the week. And so because of that, we were able to then bust the guys in from the township to a safer environment. And so the thing is this. We might be tempted like the disciples or like I was in that moment to give in to the fear and, and not believe in the authority of Jesus over all things because we're tactile people, right? I, I think that's the right word. In other words, you know, th this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm experiencing. Therefore, I feel this way. This is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing guys with guns and, 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 and I don't know what's going to happen and therefore this is what I'm experiencing so I'm feeling fear. Whereas if we want to see the gloriousness of Jesus in our situations, we need to believe, we need to trust that Jesus has all authority in that moment. That somehow in his divine wisdom and ability, he's going to use it for his glory and our good. So we need to hold on to the truth that Jesus is the light of the world who has come into this world to dispel the darkness. And he says that light is within us. Therefore, darkness does not have the final say over us. Our story continues. Have a look at verse 11. Jesus says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. The disciple said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. All he needs is a strong cup of coffee and he's, he's good to go, right? Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. They, they weren't the sharpest bunch, but anyway, here we go. Then Jesus told them plainly, as he so often had to, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad, listen to this, that I was not there so that you may believe. 
so that you may believe in my authority, not just over darkness, but over life and death. And so as you believe in that authority, you will see my glory. He goes on and says, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Clearly they did not get the whole light and dark type thing that nothing's going to happen. But anyway, so they rock up in Bethany and the next thing we need to believe about the authority of Jesus is this. Point number two, Jesus' authority over life and death. And so when they arrive in Bethany, they discover that uh, Lazarus has been dead. In fact, he's been in the tomb for four days. Have a look at verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, here's something interesting. When the author John repeats a phrase or a word, it means he's trying to make a point. And he repeats the fact in the story that Lazarus has been dead for four days. And the significance of the four days is this. There was this ancient Persian belief uh, that, when, that you know, when someone died, their soul would kind of hang around the body for the first three days. And then on the fourth day, when the body started to decompose, it would then leave, meaning that there was now no more chance of the soul reuniting with the body. And, and they say, it goes on to say that the soul would, would go over the spiritual bridge called Sinvat, where the good souls would be separated from the bad souls. And, and they say that many of the Jews in Jesus' day, they actually held to this belief. And so in the first three days, what would happen is mourners would come, almost professional mourners would come along and they would weep and they would wail as loudly as they could so that the dead person's soul could bear witness to the grief and the sadness of his or her family. But now it's the fourth day here. And so if this family holds towards this belief, that means the soul of their brother has left. And now there is zero, no chance of a miracle. But let's see what Martha has to say to Jesus. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So maybe a little bit accusatory in tone. Maybe she was indicting Jesus of the fact that if he had just come when they asked him to come, while Lazarus was still alive, he could have done something. Because up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has only turned water into wine, healed a sick boy, and heal the blind man. He hasn't raised anyone back to life. And so it seems that John is building Jesus' case of authority over all things from one degree to the next. And so maybe for Martha here, she accuses Jesus because maybe death now is just one step too far for him. But verse 22 tells us that she has a bit of hope. Look at this. She says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so Jesus responds to that hope. Have a look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again 
in the resurrection on the last day. So Jesus means, no, I'm, I'm about to raise your brother like in the next 10 minutes if I can just find the tomb. But she believes, and all credit to her, her, her theology is pretty good. She believes that there will be a resurrection at the end of the age, when, at the consummation of the messianic kingdom, when Jesus comes back, there will be a resurrection. But this is general faith. General faith in a general future event, not particular faith in a particular event that Jesus is alluding to. And so discerning that her faith in his authority over all things, including death, is a bit weak. He then clarifies and he says this in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. You're speaking about this resurrection one day? Well, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In other words, do you believe that I have this kind of authority? The I am statements of Jesus, they're, they're amazing. They simultaneously show us how glorious Jesus is and how much authority and power he has. And he's saying, do you believe that I have authority over life and death? I love how Chrysostom's, he, he was this ancient church father around about the 4th, 5th century. Um, and uh, he, he explains this so well. It's kind of long, but I, w- I really want you to read it with me because he just gets really passionate towards the end. Have a look at this. He explains what Jesus is saying like this. He says, he, Jesus, shows Martha that he needed none to help him. He tells her that he's not merely a human teacher of the resurrection, but the divine author of all the resurrection, whether spiritual or physical, and the root and fountain of all life. I am that that high and holy one who by taking man's nature upon me have ennobled his body, given it nobility, and made its resurrection possible. I am the great first cause and the procurer of man's resurrection, the conqueror of death and the savior of the body. I am the great spring and source of all life and whatever life anyone has, eternal, spiritual, physical, is all owing to me. All that are raised from the grave will be raised by me. Separate from me, there is no life at all. Do you believe this? He then says to Martha. Do you believe I have that kind of authority? Even over death, which is perceived to be so final in our minds. Have a look at her response, verse 27. Jesus, I'm sorry, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Full stop. So, so it's not, not quite wrong. It's a good answer, but it's not specifically what he was asking, right? He was asking, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Well, why does he emphasize belief in that? Because when we believe that he is the resurrection and the life, we become united to him spiritually in his death and resurrection. We receive his life. We receive his resurrection life. And so one day, yes, when this body gives up, when this heart stops beating, we will continue to live with him for all eternity. Why? Because we have his resurrection life beating within us. But that's the big deal breaker, isn't it? 
A lot of people in this world, if they believe that Jesus was a historic figure, they love Jesus then. Oh, no, Jesus was great. He was a great moral teacher. And if you live according to his teachings, if you apply his principles to your life, you can live a pretty good life. But they struggle with the I am statements. Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, no, no, no. Way too arrogant. Way too narrow-minded, Jesus. There's more than one way to God. Or I am the resurrection and the life. No, no, Jesus. You are just a man. Once you die, you die. And so there are massive consequences to not believing in the authority that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In fact, this is an issue the Apostle Paul had to deal with in the Corinthian church. There was this false teaching going around in the church saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. Jesus didn't rise. And so he writes to them in 1 Corinthians 15 and he says this to them. Have a look at verse 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, as I believe is the rumor going around the church, this false teaching, well, let me tell you, if that's true, have, have, a, look at, have a look at these consequences. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. In other words, sunrise, why are you here? Your, your faith is futile. Go have brunch at one of the hotels. Go, go hang out on Seven Mile Beach, but here's the dampener. While you're getting your suntan or your brunch, you need to know that you're still in your sins, that you're still under the authority of sin, death, and darkness. It gets worse. Verse 18, he says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Christians who have died, who have passed away, they're not with Jesus. They've just simply perished. Here comes the good news. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I love that he uses the words in fact, because it is a fact. There were many eyewitnesses to it. And because of his resurrection, he has paved the way for a massive massive harvest of believers who will go be with him in glory, see him in his glory, and they themselves, are ourselves, be in glory for all eternity because he has all authority over life and death. And if he has authority over death, something that we perceive is so final, then he also has authority over every single thing that we go through in this life, and he will use it for his glory, which always results in our good. The question is, do we believe this? If you're here this morning and you are still, like I said earlier, maybe on the fence checking out Christianity, would you consider answering this question for yourself this morning? Do you believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life? But for some of us, maybe a lot of us here, that's not quite the issue. Oh, we're down with that, Jason, thank you. And we're down with the fact that yes, he's going to use all things for his glory, which is the best thing that he can do for us. But the issue for me, Jason, is where is Jesus when it hurts? 
Where is Jesus when I'm in the middle of what I'm going through? Does he get it? Does he understand what I'm going through? Does he care? So, the last point. The last thing we need to believe about the authority of Jesus so as to see his glory is Jesus' authoritative compassion over life. And by authoritative compassion, I mean Jesus is not just able to identify with us in our pain and our suffering, but he has the authority to actually do something about it. And so after her conversation with Jesus, Martha runs back to Mary, tells her that Jesus has arrived, and then Mary runs out to, to meet Jesus. And have a look at verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See, this just proves that, that the woman talk, right? So while Jesus is delaying, they're like saying, listen, when he gets here, we're going to say this. We're going to make sure that he is in trouble, right? So they say the exact same thing. But look at Jesus' reaction. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Then have a look at verse 38. It says this, then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Now, at this particular moment in the story, it actually reveals two emotions in Jesus. The first one is that, yes, Jesus does identify with us in our pain. The shortest verse in the Bible tells us so. Jesus wept. And he's not weeping for Lazarus. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus like in the next 30 seconds or so. He's weeping for all the pain and the suffering that everyone is going through because of this death. Now listen, when, when it comes to, just a quick on the aside, when it comes to tragedies in particular, there, there are two incorrect extreme views of Jesus. The one extreme view is to say, well, look how loving Jesus is. Right? Shorter verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. He weeps with us. He, he knows what we're going through. He identifies with us, but he's not very authoritative. He doesn't have much power because look at all the pain and suffering in the world. He, he can't do anything about it. The other extreme view is to go, no, no, no. He has a lot of authority. He has a lot of power. He's just not very loving because look at all the pain and suffering in the world. He doesn't do anything about it. And so what we're going to see in the rest of this story is that, no, he is very loving. He identifies with us in our pain and suffering. And he is very authoritative, very powerful. Because the second emotion this reveals about Jesus is his anger. Verse 33 and 38 say that Jesus was deeply moved. That, that verb moved in the Greek refers to anger. In fact, it means to snort with anger. You know, you kind of picture a bull with the ring through its nose and it's snorting with anger. It's about to charge. And so scholars are puzzled. Why, why does John put the word anger in here in this very tender moment? Who is Jesus so incredibly angry at? Is he angry at the sisters, Mary and Martha, for their unbelief? No. Is he angry at what the Jews said to him? Have a look at this, verse 37. 
But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? In other words, I thought this guy had authority. I thought he could do something. What about that whole blind man situation? Could he not do anything here? Is he powerless to do anything here? No. Again, have a look at this great old scholar, B.B. Warfield. He has a brilliant explanation. He says this. In Mary's grief, he sees and feels the misery of the whole race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that is the object of his wrath. Wrath, And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he had come into the world to destroy. He's talking about the devil. He's talking about death here. He says, tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but that is incidental. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb in Calvin's words as a champion who prepares for conflict. I mean, come on, this is this brave heart material right here. On the, on the one side, you've got this lamb-like compassion of Jesus who identifies with us in our pain and suffering. And then on the other hand, you've got this lion-hearted, missional Jesus who is out to destroy the power of sin, death, and darkness over our lives. And so sunrise, we've got a Jesus who cries with us and we've got a Jesus who fights for us. And so finally we arrive at the pinnacle of the story. Jesus prays and then he says this. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Proving that he is the resurrection and the life. Proving his authority so that everyone could then see how glorious he is. Now we might be thinking, well, that's great. That's really is great. It's wonderful for Lazarus, wonderful for his sisters, wonderful for all the witnesses, but what about us? Where's, where's my miracle in what I'm going through? Here's the thing. The death and resurrection of Lazarus becomes an illustration of what Jesus is going to do in six days' time. His own death and his own resurrection. Through this tragedy, Jesus reveals the most glorious and loving thing that he can do for us is, become, is by becoming the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, dying on the cross in our place. And by rising three days later, he destroys the power of sin, death, and darkness over us, which would have been the most tragic thing in the world. If he didn't rise, sunrise, we would still be under the authority and power of sin, death, and the devil. But because he is the resurrection and the life, no tragedy can ever separate us from God, not even death. And so no matter what we're going through in this life, we will always have this eternal hope. No matter what we're going through, this is not my permanent reality. My glory is coming. I'm gonna see the glory of Jesus. I'm gonna be in glory for all eternity. So what do we do? We do what Jesus said to Martha in verse 40. Have a look at this. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? 
Did I not tell you that if you believed, if you believed in my authority, you would see the glory of God? And I don't think Martha would argue here that Jesus doing something for his glory is not the most loving thing that he can do for us. And I don't think she would question his authority over all things, including death. And I don't think she would accuse Jesus of being an egomaniac, only concerned for his own glory and, and unable to identify with us in our pain and our suffering. Because she could see the authority of Jesus and it led her to see the glory of Jesus. And so I want us to believe in the authority of Jesus so that we see the glory of Jesus. So here we go. One practical thing, and then I'm done. One practical suggestion for you, just for this week, not for the rest of your life, just for this week, just give this a go, right? Would you take one of the seven I am statements of Jesus and memorize it? Just this week. Because like I said, nothing quite demonstrates simultaneously his authority over all things and how glorious he is than one of his I am statements. Let it fill your mind. Let it drop down into your heart so it opens our eyes to see how glorious he is no matter the circumstances we are going through. And then can you imagine? Can you imagine what your life would look like if we were so convinced about the authority of Jesus? how we would feel, we would be free from fear and anxiety because the great I am is with us. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the bread. He is our great shepherd. He is the light of this world, leading me, guiding me, protecting me. We would know, we would know the comfort of his authority over us and the joy of his glory before us. You would know the comfort of his authority over your life and the joy of his glory before you. And that would be an amazing defining moment. We cling to that truth. That Jesus has authority over all things. As you believe that, you will see his glory. And that is the most loving thing that he can reveal to us. Amen. Love to pray for us as the worship team comes up and leads us in one last song. So Father, I, I beg of you that you, would, that you would make it so clear for us that your son has supreme authority over all things, even life, and death. And because of that truth, because of that authority, as we cling to it, as we hold on to it, through all of the things that we go through in this life, we are assured that we will see your glory finally and fully. So please won't you comfort our hearts with that. Please won't you let that truth be a defining moment right now in so many people's lives, especially those who need something from you this morning, who need some comfort from you. Would you show them your power, your authority, your love, and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.